Well, sometimes in the Jones household, we speak in movie quotes. Uh, And unfortunately for my kids' sake, that means that oftentimes it comes from bad comedies in the 80s and 90s. Um, But what happens in that is these quotes become like normative shorthand for other phrases, and they have no idea where it came from originally, but we're able to just kind of inject them into life, and my wife and I laugh at it. Um, And so even if the movie itself was horrible, we found that sometimes a movie quote is worth a thousand words. So from time to time in our house, in in a person's moment of maybe confusion or misdirection or heading in the wrong way, uh, you'll hear one of us say to each other, you're going the wrong way. Anyone know where that was from? Uh, you're going the wrong way, which if you know is from, uh, I guess, 1987 movie called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh, and there's this scene, again, it's not the best of movies, I won't commend it to you, but there's this scene where John Candy and Steve Martin enter the freeway going the wrong way. And so a well-meaning person in another car tries to roll down their window and tell them that they're driving on the wrong side of the road, yelling, you're going the wrong way. Well, I'll just go ahead and play it for you here. Don't worry, no one got hurt, they made it through safely. But that line becomes part of our vocabulary. You're going the wrong way. And again, it's that classic scene. like, how does he know where we're going? How does he know? Thank you, we're fine. You're going the wrong way. Seems appropriate for starting a sermon on repentance. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for repent is the word shuv. 
And the word shuv simply means this, to be heading in one direction, to stop, to shuv, is to stop and to turn around. It means you're going the wrong way and you realize it and you stop and you head in the other direction. To shuv can look a lot of different ways, but to shuv is to stop and turn around. Here's the question though, who needs to repent? The question is, who gets to tell other people to repent? But the fact of the matter is this, it's really hard to admit when you're going the wrong way. It's much easier just to say, thank you, (laughs) you have no idea where I'm going. Thank you though, woo, you know, see ya. It's really hard to admit when you're going the wrong way. So open up your Bibles if you have one. We've got some of the verses on the screen too. To Jonah chapter three. Jonah chapter three. So three weeks ago we started a new series. We're in the Lenten season right now. In these days and weeks that lead up to Easter. And we started this series in the book of Jonah, and many of you maybe have heard about Jonah, or you've read Jonah, or you're familiar with the story of Jonah, but we kind of named as we began this series leading up to Easter that there is a fair amount of misinformation attached to the story of Jonah, or we think we know the story of Jonah when we may not actually know the story of Jonah. So our desire this month has been to bring some fresh ears and some fresh eyes to this story and to the text to see what God may be saying to us. So, for those of you maybe that are more new with us, let me give you a quick kind of on-ramp, a quick debrief of where we have been, and then we'll spend some time in Jonah chapter three today. Here's where we've gone so far. So in Jonah chapter one, the story begins that the word of God, the word of the Lord, comes to a man named Jonah, son of Amittai, It's a prophet. We we come quickly to realize this is a story about a prophet. It starts just like many other stories in the Old Testament that are prophetic books. But unlike other stories, unlike other books of the Bible that are prophets, this story is not just about what the prophet says to other people. This story is about this prophet's life. His life becomes the message of this book. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai. He tells him to arise from where he is. This is 8th century BC. He's living in northern Israel. I think we have a map. He's supposed to go and deliver a message to Nineveh. But instead of delivering a message of judgment to Nineveh, he goes down from northern Israel to Joppa. He hops on a boat and he tries to go as far away in the opposite direction that he possibly can from God. So instead of going east, he goes west. And he tries to run away from the presence of God. So he goes down to Joppa, he hops on a boat, he keeps going down, down to Joppa, down to a boat, down to the belly of the boat, and he catches this ship. And the ship then ends up in the midst of this massive storm. The text says that that the Lord hurled a storm at them like a person throwing a javelin and the storm kicks up and things go crazy and what happens is the sailors on the boat realize something's going wrong here and they figure out somehow that the person who's gone wrong is Jonah and 
he quickly admits that he has been running away from God and to end the storm, he says, throw me overboard. And they don't want to do it, but they end up doing it and they throw Jonah overboard into the water and the storm stops. And the beginning of the Jonah story is really bizarre in many ways. It's satire. Everything is exaggerated and everything is backwards. And so this prophet of God who's supposed to be obedient, who's supposed to represent the one true God, he's the disobedient one. He's the one who is running away. The Hebrew is running from God and the quote pagan sailors end up worshiping God. The good guy in the story becomes the bad guy in the story and the bad guys in the story become the good guys and the one who thinks that he is in is now out and the ones who quote were out are now in. So everything gets flipped on its head in Jonah chapter one. So then you go into chapter two and God arranges for this runaway prophet to get swallowed up by a fish. And he prays. He's in there for three days and three nights. And we talked about that last week, this intricate Hebrew poem. And some read Jonah chapter two and think, ah, finally, this is like Jonah's conversion moment where he comes to understand the truth of everything. And he's praying to God. But the more we look at the prayer, the more suspect the prayer was. And he's sharing these disconnected thoughts that actually kind of are hypocritical kind of prayer. And you don't see much of a heart change in this guy, even though he's been rescued in the belly of a fish. Ultimately, at the end of chapter two, the great fish spits him out vomits him out onto dry land, and the story continues. So now Jonah has a fresh start. Has he changed? We'll see. Here's Jonah chapter three. Says then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So, in many ways, Jonah chapter 3 might feel like deja vu all over again. Because it is. It's the same scene replaying from Jonah chapter 1. God says, I want you to get up and go to Nineveh. And so the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah. But instead of hopping on a boat and running away, this time Jonah obeys. This time he goes. So he arises from wherever he got vomited out onto the shoreline, I'm sure smelling just peachy. And he goes all the way to the city of Nineveh. And he gets to Nineveh, and he declares this message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And what happens? What happens? They repent. Like, it, it works. Message received. Jonah goes. He speaks this really short message, and they respond. They call for displays of repentance, the public wearing of sackcloth. And as a city, as a community, they shuv, 
they turn. It gets even more detailed as the story goes on in verse six. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. Again, the most powerful man on earth, the Assyrian Empire. He arises from his throne, removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn, there's that word again, shuv. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is a crazy scene. Maybe you've read this a million times in your kid's Bible, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's what happens. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and they repent, and they turn. But like, this is a really detailed, dramatic, widespread scene. And the news of Jonah's message reaches the king, and he leverages his leadership to deliver a national response. A few things to highlight here. Um, The responses of the people here in the story are quick, immediate, whereas Jonah has needed time and time and time again here. The message comes, and they're like, boom, tur, repent. They believe God. Everything is happening for them very quickly, and they end up crying out to God. Same word used here. The king is crying out in the same way that the sailors are crying out in chapter one as they're there in the storm on the boat. So these people who are not normally God people, or this God, they have their own gods, are now turning to this God and believing and crying out. Also, there's a, like, it's very heartfelt. There's a sense of desperation. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of who knows that God may turn from the judgment that he has said is coming our way. And then again, kind of fitting for this book where everything's a little satirical and large and exaggerated, notice their repentance includes the animals. So you say, we're not gonna eat and we're not gonna drink and we're all gonna fast, all of us, the king, the nobles, the common men and our animals. And we're gonna wear sackcloth and ashes, including our cows. So let's make some little repentant sackcloth you know, outfits for our cows to wear in repentance. So like, this is like, again, dramatic, extreme, a little exaggerated when you have your animals repent too. But something's changing here for them as they turn. And again, uh, turning from our evil way, from the violence that are in, that's in our hands. This culture, again, if you, not, not from the Bible, just do history. Look at this culture, the Assyrian culture was violent and evil and the story of their military conquest very well documented and very well known. They skinned people alive. They stacked up bodies on poles. They put the heads on the gates of the city. Just vile military violence. And there's someone's turn. Sometimes the turning that is needed is big and dramatic and clear as day. 
Sometimes not so much. So what happens then? Verse 10, they turn, they call out to God, they put on sackcloth and ashes, they declare confession and repentance. And verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. And at the end of the day, they experience salvation from judgment because God hears and God sees and God forgives. It reminds me of another passage in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For those, like, man, where is God? Why isn't he showing up on the scene yet? Why has he come back yet? Because he's, he's not slow. He's not dawdling. He's not wasting time. But he's patient. Because the heartbeat of God is that no one should perish, but that all should that all would have the opportunity to turn from the things that would actually bring death, to turn from the things that would actually destroy, toward the things that would actually bring life. Now again, many people reading through Jonah come to chapter three and are like, wow, great. Great, right? Like, he did the thing, he went, he delivered the message, they repented, and hey, great. If only Jonah ended in Jonah chapter three. It was like, well, celebrate Jonah. He's a, he's maybe had a little hard time getting going, went the wrong way, but he figured things out and he finally obeyed and yay, yay Jonah. Let's have a celebration. But I just wanna point out, and maybe you're on to me as how I read the book of Jonah, that this book doesn't mean what you may think it means. This story doesn't mean what you think it means. Because as Jonah chapter three happens, you discover that Nineveh responds to the message of God in spite of Jonah, not because of Jonah. Jonah's mission, if you wanna put it in those terms, ends up being a success, not because of Jonah. And I wanna point out a few things. First of all, what he says, can you go to the next slide? So when the word of the Lord comes to him the first time, again, it's very similar the second time, but we're told here, again, it doesn't show up in the ESV as well, but we're told the second time that when he, he's supposed to go to Nineveh and call out to it, and that language a second time has a ringing of an oracle of deliverance. The message that God is intending to bring is that, yes, judgment is coming for your evil ways, but there's hope in turning. There's hope for you to repent. There's, there's do this or judgment is coming. Call out against it. When Jonah shows up on the scene, what does he say? Do I have that on the next slide? This is, this is Jonah's sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Do you notice anything missing there? This is Jonah showing up on the scene and saying, 40 days and it's going down. Not 40 days and you'll be overthrown if you do not turn or if you do not repent. He's just showing up and declaring, hey, 40 days. 
40 days and it's burn time. 40 days and judgment is coming. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And like, I know that's a small detail, but it's a big detail. This is Jonah showing up and declaring judgment without any opportunity to reply or respond. He declares 40 days and this thing's going down. And you think God goes through all this trouble to call Jonah to go to these people and this is his sermon. It's eight words. In the Hebrew, it's five words. It's as though Jonah shows up in this place and says, yes, I'm here against my will, and yes, I've been given this task to deliver a message, but I'm gonna do it as short and as sweet as possible. I'm gonna preach the shortest sermon in the history of sermons. You may be happy if I were to preach a five-word sermon, but when things are on the line like this, Jonah shows up and he preaches a five-word sermon. Another small detail, how far does Jonah go into the city? Chapter three, verse four, it says that Jonah travels into the city of Nineveh a day's journey. A verse earlier, so in verse three, chapter three, verse three, the author gives us a, a piece of information that's like, that's ridiculous, I don't, I don't need to know why or how big Nineveh is, but the, the author says in verse three that the great city of Nineveh is a three-day journey. It's a three-day journey. Not that it takes you three days to walk from one edge to the other, but it takes about three days to do the city. You ever been to a big city that takes more than one day to do the city? So Nineveh is a three-day operation. Jonah goes in for how long? One day. Jonah says, I'm here. I'm gonna deliver a message. It may be five words, but I'm gonna go in a day's journey. This isn't even a halfway job. This is like a third of the way job to deliver a message that doesn't have all the information. There's no message of God. There's no message of turning. There's no message of hope. So if I'm just calling this like I see it, this is called prophetic sabotage. This is like, fine, God, I'll go, but I'm just going to go a day's in, not three. Fine, God, I'll bring a message, but I'm not going to mention you. Oh, I'm going to give five words. Because Jonah doesn't want these people to turn. He does not want these people to receive mercy or grace. I'll leave this for next week, Jonah chapter four. Jonah hates these people. He's angry that God wouldn't want to do anything good for people like that. So in a perfect world, Jonah three should end with Again, over 100,000 people come to repent. 100,000 people experience deliverance. They experience God not judging them for their sin. And it should end after leading 100,000 Ninevites to repent and place their faith in Yahweh. Jonah smiled a great smile, praised God, and went home to Israel to tell everyone about the mighty saving acts of God. 
That's not how the chapter ends. Jonah should be going back home celebrating a mighty move of God. Like, no other prophet gets this kind of response. Not Ezekiel, not Jeremiah, not Isaiah. Like, no one gets this kind of response. That's what's so ironic in this story, is that God works in spite of it all. In spite of Jonah's one-day journey into a three-day's journey, in spite of Jonah's five-word sermon, in spite of Jonah's hesitation and hard-heartedness toward these people, they respond over the top from king to cattle in repentance, crying out to God, believing God at his word. And in spite of Jonah doing everything he can to sabotage the effort, in spite of all of that, God is still good and God still works. And the lesson of the story is like, what is going on in Jonah that he would be so bitter and angry and hateful toward these people that he does everything he can to make sure that they don't know about God and that he has to do it the very least as possible. Again, I'm not going to preach next week's chapter, but do you see chapter 4, verse 1? They respond from king to cattle in repentance. Chapter four, verse one, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. God, why would you forgive them? You're supposed to kill them. You're supposed to smite them. You're supposed to squash them, because they're my enemies. Isn't that what we do to our enemies, right? We're supposed to hate our enemies? squash them, judge them, want God to do the same. (laughs) This whole Jonah story from chapter three reminds me of another Old Testament story. I'm gonna tell it real quick. It reminds me of the story about Israel's first king. Their first king was named Saul. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15 It opens where God sends his prophet Samuel to go to Saul and to instruct him to wipe out these people they're going to, the Amalekite people. And God is extremely clear in the command that everything, person to cattle, should die. So Saul rallies the troops, we're told in the story, 210,000 men, they win the battle. They're supposed to wipe out everyone. 1 Samuel 15, verse 2, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So Saul, the command from God was that everything needed to be wiped out. And he went in and they won the battle, but then they decided to keep back a few things. So when the prophet shows up to Saul on this day, he's like, hey, Saul, how's it going? And Saul is like, hey, good to see you. I have done exactly what you told me to do. And then the prophet says, well, how come I keep hearing all these animals over here? What about them? And Saul's response is, oh, yes, ah, those things. We didn't want to do everything. We figured we'll keep those for God. 
Here's what the prophet then has to say. Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It's an amazing verse. To obey is better than sacrifice. And then this one phrase that sticks, verse 23, he says, rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Now again, most of us would say, yeah, the Bible probably is anti-witchcraft and probably anti-idolatry. Yeah, the Bible probably condemns those kinds of things. But the word that sticks out to me that he puts in the midst of rebellion and divination and iniquity and idolatry is this word right here. It's the word presumption. You may hear a lot of people talking about rebellion or divination or iniquity or idolatry. But the prophet here says that presumption is the same. I've never done witchcraft before. but I presume a lot. In that place, Saul was supposed to follow out what God called him to do, and he's like, yeah, maybe, okay, some of that. To presume that your option is better, to presume that God wasn't really serious about it all, or to presume that God needs a little more help in the decision-making process and that he wouldn't mind if he just kind of did things maybe a little bit your way. to presume, going back to the beginning, to presume is to go the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. It's saying to God on some things, sure, but on other things, I think I know better. I think I want to do it my way. Presumption is the stuff that ruins kings and kingdoms and it boils prophets and it's an issue that ends up destroying our own souls too. So we begin to see, even in Jonah chapter three, there's more than one way to go the wrong way. And sometimes going the wrong way is like the Ninevites in this very overt evil, their grotesque military tactics of stacking skulls and skinning people alive. Sometimes it's very obvious. You're like, wow, that is not good. That's going the wrong way. But sometimes going the wrong way is like Saul or Jonah, and it's cloaked in religious language. And it's filled with part of the way obedience It's the five-word sermons. It's the one day into a three-day's journey. There's more than one way to go the wrong way. There's uh, an overt way, and there's also this hidden religious way where we end up taking the place of God ourselves. The truth of the matter is, 
Jonah in the Mirror is the series. As we hold up Jonah in the Mirror, the more we look at the story of Jonah, the more we see ourselves. Because the truth of the matter is, is that every human being has done things, thought things, engaged in things that end up leading further away from the heart of God. And the good news of the scripture is that someone much greater than Jonah has come. There's one who did not edit or condense one jot or tittle of God's law, but rather lived it in full, full obedience to the Father in flesh and blood. There's one who came and did not cut the job short after just one day, but after the third day rose again. There's a person who lived a life of total and complete obedience to the Father to provide mercy and grace for those who fall short of the glory of God. And his name is Jesus. And he comes offering a message to those who would turn and receive and believe and receive from him life and grace and freedom. He has been obedient. Jesus has been obedient for all the times and places where we end up hating our enemies like Jonah. For all the times and places that we've gotten angry about the wrong things. For all the times when we live lives of presumption that we know best. And we tell God, I got this one. The king of Nineveh stepped off his throne and took off his royal robes in repentance. The king of kings, Jesus, took a step off of his throne in his royal robes and he took on humanity to offer a way of life and forgiveness and grace for us all. And it's only through his work that the Ninevites, Jonah, or anyone like us has hope and life and freedom to turn. There's a scholar, pastor, who wrote some poetry. We'll end with some poetry today. He ended with, his name's Thomas John Carlyle. He wrote some Jonah poems. I found them helpful. Here's Jonah's malady. He here being Jonah. He huffed and he puffed, but the city didn't collapse just then. He sneered and he jeered at the mercy reprieving disaster from men. He couldn't, he wouldn't believe repentance could ever be real. So he moaned and he groaned since he failed to conceive the love that God asked him to feel. And this one's called Tantrum. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly and he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I know what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't try to forgive me either. It's hard to admit when you're going the wrong way. And yet God in his kindness is committed 
to reminding us and inviting us to turn. When Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, he, he nailed his 95 theses to the wall, to the door at Wittenberg. Theses number one of 95, don't worry, I won't read all 95, I just need the first one, is that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Repent isn't just something that you do once or never, but that all of life would be a life of repentance, a life of turning, a life of discovering, I'm going the wrong way. (laughs) I am invited back to the one who knows me and loves me. I'm going the wrong way. All of life is a life of repentance and turning back to him because there's grace and there's mercy and there's love. So come and listen this morning to what God may be saying to you. Whether it's in the big, overt, Nineveh style. Like, yeah, that is a a wrong direction for your soul. Come. Turn back to, to him. Or if it's more small and more hidden and more Jonah style in hatred and presumption maybe even colored over with some pretty religious language. Come and turn. I need to hear, you're going the wrong way. Jesus is offering us hope today. Hope to change. Hope to be obedient. Hope for a life that is truly life. Do we listen? Let me pray. Lord, sometimes the mirror is uncomfortable to look at, and it's easier to point at others, Jonah, and say how ridiculous they are, for how hard-hearted they are, how hateful they are, how presumptuous they are. And yet, Lord, the mirror shows a lot going on in us, too. So in humility today, Lord God, we thank you for another chance to hear from the prophet Jonah, from his life, that speaks something back to us. And we thank you, God, that in your nature you are patient, as 2 Peter says, not longing for any to perish, but that for all would come to turn to you. So yet again, another day, God, you've given us as a gift, another chance to be here, to be still and quiet before you, another opportunity to turn, to believe you, to take your word, to lay down the stuff that would kill us, that would destroy us, that would ruin us, and to pick up again by faith the things of life, the things of the kingdom of heaven through the finished work of Jesus. So God, would you form us and shape us into being a people forgiven, changed, a people who love, a people not of presumption, a people of obedience, a people that don't celebrate the destruction of our enemies but would long for all to experience life and grace. Would you save us from the Jonah deep inside of us, we pray. 
in the name of Jesus. Amen.